Hello, friends, and welcome to the Coffee and Deer podcast. Happy to be back here again with you. Glad you're listening. Today, the doctor and I are going to talk to Mr. Corey Kraft, who shot a nearly 200-inch buck in southeast Georgia last season. He's a professional land manager, uh, really passionate about his work and hunting, obviously. Uh, And this is actually going to be the first in a series of several episodes that we're going to do that are basically deer stories. Try to get you all fired up and excited and ready to go for this coming deer season, which for some people has already started. If you're in Florida and for others, it's right on your doorstep, which is exciting. It's the best time of year. And I want to tell you right out of the gate, we have B team reports to give. So we're going to do that after the interview. So stay tuned. You don't want to miss the B team reports. The doctor and I are in our best form. And speaking of the doctor, uh, Mike, did you do anything today to add to the already lengthy B team report? I did. Should I share it now or wait until later? No, got to wait. We got to, we got to okay. tease it. We got to be those people that are like, nope, now we got to, we got to wait till the end. So, but I'm actually anxious to hear it. Cause I wasn't sure I expected you to say, yes, you had something new. So, Hey, it's me. What do you expect? Yeah. Different day, different opportunity. It's a good chance. Something's going to happen. Uh, Hey, our show sponsor is the Ferminator. This is a perfect time to be talking about the Ferminator because it is fall food plot time in most places in the country. And you've heard me talk about the Ferminator. You've heard me talk about my Ferminator. I have the ATV model. It handles my small food plots beautifully. Uh, Just a great heavy duty agricultural grade tool that does the disking. It does the cultipacking and it does the planting. Uh, and I've had uh, great success with mine. I love it. And I'm not sure uh, how I would function without it. It would certainly make life a lot more difficult. Uh, go to theferminator.com. Theferminator.com uh, renews outdoor equipment. I have been in the plant where they build these things. And I can tell you it's a top-notch company and top, top-notch equipment. So check that out, The Ferminator. We appreciate their support. We also have a current fundraiser at the NDA. We are giving away a tracker utv courtesy courtesy of our friends at cabela's and bass pro shops we've done this with them a couple of times and how this one works is the first thing i want to say though is actually we're only doing a thousand tickets there are only a thousand chances so that's when in the grand scheme of things for a prize of this caliber those odds aren't bad and here's how you enter Uh, it's actually part of a membership drive so if you want for $100, you get a one-year NDA membership and one chance for the UTV. For better money and better odds, you can get a three-year membership and three chances on the UTV for 250 bucks. And this is a fine piece of equipment. These things are not cheap. And worst case scenario, you end up with a three-year NDA membership at the end of it. That's not all bad. So that uh, is going to end at midnight on August 23rd. So check that out and buy yourself a chance or two or three or buy one for somebody else as a gift. Mike, you could, uh, you know, I don't know about you, or, or, but for me, I know I could stand to have another uh, one of those UTVs in my garage and you'd probably like to have one too. I would. I mean, I, I actually have just a, a simple four-wheeler and there's been many a times that just having either the cargo box or the ability to have a roof over your head if a sudden rainstorm pops up, mud, you know, you name it. It's it's good to actually have someone actually maybe sitting beside you if I wanted to take, you know, my wife or my kids along with me 
they wouldn't have to, you know, jump on the rack on the back, literally, which is a little <laughs> bit unsafe. And, you know, I'm all about safety. So a lot of reasons why it'd be very useful. Yes, absolutely. And these things aren't cheap, folks. I mean, I know uh, I did end up buying one at one point, and I can tell you that it was more expensive than my first car. Now, I'm a little bit older, so my first car isn't the cost of what cars are today, but it's definitely not cheap, and it's a great prize. It's one of the better prizes we do uh, through our fundraising each year. All right, this is an Ask NDA Anything episode. So we're going to get a big buck story, we're going to get the B-team report, and we're getting Ask NDA Anything this show is almost too good to be true, doctor. I don't know. It just seems like too much. It's almost like Christmas in August. We're going to have to start that little tagline because there's a lot of stuff going on today. There's all a good. Lot of, a lot of stuff going on and it's all good. So let's get into the Ask NDA Anything. And uh, I picked two out. The others, I, I will respond to some folks. They don't necessarily all make the show. But these couple did. And Jason from Tennessee, uh, and this is actually an email from Jason. And so speaking of the B team report, what I did as we were starting the show is I turned my email off so that if it went, if it made a chime or something during the show, it didn't ruin the show. So uh, I am hurriedly open, opening up the uh, email from Jason because I want to read, read it directly. He says, uh, I have a question about bucks and growth of antlers. I've seen bucks that drop their antlers in late December to early January, where others still have one or both when turkey season opens in early April. What effects, of any, of, of, if any, does dropping early or late uh, have on the buck's net, next set of antlers? Jason, that is a great question. I, too, have seen. I've gotten trail camera pictures, at least, of deer in April that still had antlers. And I've also gotten pictures and even found antler sheds as early as November. And so uh, the first thing I'll tell you is, much like people, every deer is different. Okay, You're not going to get the same thing uh, from, from every deer. And so some may just, based on their, their structure, their health, their body structure, will drop early or later. Some will hold their antlers longer. There's a lot of this is tied to nutrition. A, a healthy deer is, is probably going to hold his antlers a little longer. Uh, the, some people say, and there probably is some research out there, I apologize to my much smarter and talented uh, deer biologist on the staff, but... Uh, uh, an, an older deer with a heavier set of antlers, uh, you know, was, is likely going to shed sooner. I typically don't see older deer still carrying antlers into, into March, but I tend to see a lot of smaller ones that just sort of have those little dinky racks. And so I guess the answer is, is sort of a typical answer when it comes to wildlife is it just depends. And so uh, I, I don't believe that there's anything that says a deer holding his antlers longer has any impact on antler growth the following year. As he starts to get new antler growth, uh, it's going to you know, have an impact and push those what re remaining antlers off. So uh, no, no crazy negative impact, although I will say, uh, look up crypt orchid bucks because those are interesting. Uh, these are deer that never come out of velvet or shed their antlers. And so we can't get into that here on the show. That's a whole separate show. Maybe we should have someone come on and talk about that. Uh, they can actually continue to grow new sets of antlers over antlers that still remain. And that creates all kinds of rack configurations and those types of things. So uh, that's my answer. Anything to add to that, doctor? There's a couple of things um, that you, you know, didn't mention that we do know is that when we see a drop in testosterone levels, those bucks will tend to um, shed their antlers. So if it occurs a little bit earlier in some specific deer, that is um, a reason why uh, injury is another one. 
Uh, and I, I kind of like clump injury and stress together, uh, whether that be nutritional stress, stress from an injury, all of those things can actually um, cause a buck to shed. And is um, uh, Corey, our guest mentioned that um, sometimes when a buck's injured like that, they don't even participate in the rut. So they, they do go into this survival mode and they do whatever they need to do to, to be able to, to support that. And then um, sometimes, and this is, there's no scientific evidence that I have to prove this one, but I've um, heard historically in some situations, it might be location-based. I don't know if it's like location in regards to latitude or location in regards to a specific um, subspecies or family group of deer, but uh, that's, I have no accountable talk or evidence base to actually support that. That's just some things that I have heard um, that could potentially add to the conversation. Well, I think the moral of the story is there are a lot of different factors. Every deer is different. Every situation is different, but I wouldn't be too concerned if you see a buck with antlers still in April and worry that it might impact his antlers for the following year. All right, this is a good one, Mike, and I've wondered this myself a lot. Uh, this is Greg from Nebraska, and by the way, I think this is the first time we've had a, a corn husker send a message in. So, uh, thanks for your question, Greg. He says, "Do you think it's necessary to go into the woods for morning hunts in the dark?" Uh, Greg, the older I get, the more necessary I think it is to go in before dark. <laughs> um, again, I hate to give it, and it depends answer but here's what i'll say to that i do at times think that it is an overblown notion that you have to be in and situated in a stand especially during the rut when deer can be moving at any time before daylight comes uh, i can tell you of many hunts that i've been on where i get in and get in the stand and it's dark and i don't see my first deer until 9 a.m okay and so necessary probably isn't the right word there um, but again, I think it's situation based. If it's early season and I'm going to be hunting a food plot that I have a lot of pictures or evidence that deer have been using in the morning, I'm probably, uh, evidence that they're not already there, by the way, in the dark, I'm probably going to try to get in ahead of them. So maybe that would be going in, in the dark, but really, uh, I don't think it's necessary. And it's probably an area that we all, uh, maybe it's a little bit overblown and just, that's kind of the tradition you go in before daylight. Mike? Um, I'm, I'm on the fence about this one. For me, and I have to go back to that same word, it depends, it's situational. Uh, let me use my property, for example, is that I actually have, and historically, and if anyone ever hunted my place, I would tell them, you better be ready between eight o'clock and 8.30 in October and November. The deer actually feed on agriculture a long way away from my place. And I usually don't see deer until well into shooting. Like I rarely see deer come through in the dark. I rarely hear them come through in the dark and I rarely see them just at the crack of dawn. Now, conversely in the evenings, my evening hunts, I have to be in the stand much sooner. And I know that wasn't your question, but it's situational based on where they're bedding and where they're feeding. I had a buck that we called Nightwalker that was a beautiful 10 point 130, 135 class that would consistently walk through my place at 6.30 in the morning. Like when I'm showering to get ready to go out, he's walking literally past our camp. And there's been times I get him on the camera and I'm, you know, 
15, 20 minutes behind him going the opposite way. And, you know, that I think relates to where he's betting and when he wants to be in his bed. So um, that's one situation. Now, in other situations, I do know for a fact that if your entrance route or the course that's going to take you to your stand is going to be crossed by several deer that you still need not to alert or alarm by going in earlier and letting the majority of your scent dissipate to the point where it's not an immediate threat might be that extra little edge that you need to make a better morning hunt. So allowing your scent to dissipate by going in a little bit earlier, if the deer are going to need to cross your path or, you know, potentially might, you know, if you have to walk past a bedding area to get past it early in the morning before the deer get there, and then let, you know, bucks maybe cruise in the rut and things like that unalarmed or unalerted is, is definitely a, a thought you need to actually have in your head. So it's going to be situational from my point of view. Okay. Great answer for, as always from the doctor. Who are we giving the hat to, Mike? I'm going to let you pick this time. Jason from Tennessee or Greg from Nebraska? Dang, those are both good questions. Um, I like Greg's question. Jason, I kind of feel bad because I think that he actually has a good question, but I like Greg's in regards to the usefulness for hunters as we're approaching hunting season. I could tell, I could feel you thinking through that as you were, as you were coming up with the justification. So I just can't, I know. I just, I just can't snap answer anything. You know what <laughs> I mean? I like guess like, if I go to like drive through, which I, you know, try not to do, it's, it's like, as I'm in line, like, I hope that there's more people in front of me so I can actually have time to think. <laughs> yep. I get it. I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm the same way. I'm going to be nice. I'm going to give each, each of you a hat. So Jason, Greg, send me your contact information. We'll send you out a hat. Thank you for the questions. We appreciate them. They're both very good. All right. Speaking of very good, we got a great guest to talk with us today. It's not often you get to have conversations with people that shoot uh, in a very close neighborhood, the 200 inch deer, and especially in Southern Georgia, where it is just not as common. A lot of great bucks in Georgia, clearly, but 200 inches aren't common anywhere. And this is, uh, frankly, one of the best you ever shot in Georgia. So uh, let's go ahead and start our interview with our friend, Corey Croft. Corey Croft joins us on the Coffee and Deer podcast. He is from Southwest Georgia. He's a certified wildlife biologist and also a land broker. Uh, he is, his company is Veritas Wildlife Services. He's a sales associate with Cypress Partners in Pine Grove, uh, excuse me, Pine Mountain, Georgia. And more impressive than all of that, he shot a 196-inch buck last season which for anywhere in the country is awesome let alone south georgia and he's going to share the story with us among some other things so Corey, thank you for being on the show we appreciate uh having you on and looking forward to hearing this story absolutely thanks for having me so tell us a little bit about you um so i graduated uga with a degree in wildlife biology and uh started my company, Veritas Wildlife Services, in 2008, and it's uh, it's really just been a blast. Um, I help landowners, um, you know, develop land management plans to meet whatever their goals and objectives are for the property. Most often, it's deer and turkey hunting, um, 
and it's it's just been a it's been a fun ride. I tell you, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. So take us back even further. Take us back when you were just a young guy running around. What's what's your background as an outdoors person, and what eventually led you to wanting to pursue that as a profession? So I guess uh, it all started out. Uh, I grew up on a quail plantation in South Georgia, Thomasville, Georgia, and my dad was the plantation manager there. Um, so I guess I've always been around it and just really enjoyed it. Uh, one of those rare people, I think, that kind of knew from a very early age what I wanted to do and, and it actually panned out. Um, so I guess I really wrote my first deer management plan, if you could call it that, when I was 13 years old on the plantation. And the, the deer management plan was basically, hey, let's only shoot eight points. <laughs> so, uh, you know, prior to that and, and back in those days, uh, it was pretty much if it had antlers on its head, it was going down. And uh, I just I said, you know, I think we can probably do a little bit better than what we're doing. So let's uh, let's let's plant a few food plots, which was, uh, you know, pretty basic back in those days. And uh, let's let's start letting some of these spikes and four points walk and and let's see what happens and it it worked out pretty well and um the biggest deer that that i killed down there um about four or five years into it was a 140 inch eight point which is you know really nice eight point and was a great deer for the area that we were in Um, so that's that's how i got started and um i've i've always worked in wildlife in some fashion the focus has been um, everything from Mexican spotted owls to salamanders to gopher tortoises to white-tailed deer and turkeys and dove and quail. Um, and really, I guess probably in the last 20 years or so, I've sort of centered that focus more on game management, uh, much more so on deer, turkeys, and quail. Mike, when you were a young teenager, were you writing wildlife management plans? Well, that's what I wanted to jump in here and ask because my mind is spinning is that number one, Corey, was, were you holding a firearm when you said that around a group of guys that was putting almost everything down or was your dad standing behind you with his arms folded, just nodding his head, giving everyone the eye, like whatever he says you're doing. I want to know like how a 13 year old influences like a whole group of diehard hunters to hold out. That's what I want to know. Well, I'll tell you, I've, I've really been very spoiled my entire life with having really great places to hunt. And uh, so on this quail plantation that I grew up on, uh, the only people that deer hunted there were myself, my brother, and my dad. And so I had a small group I had to convince. All right. Well, that's good. I, I appreciate the fact that they were willing to listen to you. So, I mean, good, good on you for that. But when you said that, I thought, okay, now hold on just a second here. <laughs> There's got to be more to the story. <laughs> right. Right. Well, what I was thinking was when I was 13, it was, I mean, if it was brown, it was down. I wasn't thinking about sure. all these other critters. I mean, I do now, obviously I've grown mm-hmm. up and matured, but it's, it is interesting because in the South, we experienced this a little bit also in the Midwest. So like if you go to Illinois and you hunt deer, and especially if you're hunting near a river, a lot of people are often surprised to find out that the locals almost prefer duck hunting to deer hunting. And so in the South, it's very much the same thing. Upland birds or quail, that's a really big deal there, isn't it? That's right. It is. It is. And, and, you know, the owners of the plantation, they, 
they could not care less about deer hunting. They were only concerned with ducks and dove and quail. That was it. So do you remember how? For me. That's right. Yeah, you took great advantage of that. Do you remember how old you were when you shot your first deer? I was 11 years old. 11 years old, and my first deer was a four point, and I could not have been any more excited. And that was the biggest buck in the world, if you ask me at the time. Yep. Yeah, well, we're going to talk about the biggest buck in your world here in a little bit. So, uh, but let's <laughs> let's dig into a few other things here. So, it's interesting. At the very young age, you wanted to be a land manager. I think that's awesome. Uh, you knew exactly what you wanted to do. By the way, uh, we have folks that listen to us from all around the country, and so when he says UGA, those of us in the business understand he's talking about the University <laughs> of Georgia, Go Dogs, national champions, and all that. Uh, and yes, so, sir. yeah, and Corey's actually wearing. His, his nice Georgia Bulldogs shirt that's, there. That's right. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> and so they're very proud. We have a lot of, of National Deer Association staff that live in Georgia. And so we've been hearing about the Bulldogs uh, for, for, for this whole year. But, um, but UGA, obviously, it has a, has a world-class wildlife program. And so that worked out well uh, for you, Corey. But as a, as, a wild, as a certified wildlife biologist and a land manager, Get into some of the details about that. Like, what what all does that involve? What is a what does a day in the life look like for you? Uh, well, I guess one of the things that really attracted me to this line of work is there is no normal day, and it's it, it's never a monotonous job where you're doing the same thing over and over. Um, and that's one thing that I really enjoy about this. So uh, I do everything from uh, forestry herbicide application to farming um, for wildlife, you know, doing food plots, that sort of thing, to prescribed burning, um, a lot of land management consulting, just developing, helping landowners develop plans for their property um, of what sort of habitat improvements they could do, uh, what, what sort of food plot program they need to have established, and, you know, kind of what what they can do to improve the property. So to give you an example, I guess a, a day in the life of, I'll just take today, um, you know, this morning I started about 7.30 and I put out 41 trail cameras this morning on four different properties uh, to run camera surveys. So this time of year, the month of August is just absolutely crazy for me. Um, I have about 126 cameras running right now and by this time next week, I'll add about 60 more to that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, there's never a dull moment and it's never the same thing two days in a row. So, you know, a lot of people are listening to that and they're like, man, I haven't set 40 trail cameras in my life. Uh, I know <laughs> if I, if I go out and I set four or five in a day, I'm pretty whipped. So what, what does it feel like by the end of the day and you get home and you've had a day like that? Well, I tell you, throwing around those those fifty pound bags of feed, it it gets tiresome. That's for sure. So uh, I, I sleep well at night. I'll put it that way. I got to ask you this: having been a person that has seen probably at this point millions of trail camera pictures, mm-hmm. what would be one of the most surprising or coolest things that you've ever gotten a picture of? Oh wow! Um, you know, the action shots are always really cool. Um, you know, where, whether it's a deer or a hawk or an owl or something, i tell you, I think one of, one of my favorite shots ever was right at sunset, the, the sky was just beautiful, purple and orange. 
um, sort of like the background you have there. Um, and there was a 180-inch buck standing in front of the camera, and a great horned owl was swooping through the picture directly over his head. And that was that's probably one of the coolest trail cam shots I've ever gotten. And uh, you know, I've gotten if you can think of it running around in the woods, I think I have gotten a picture of it uh, from Sasquatch to guys dressed up in suits to field mice and bears and beavers and bobcats, everything in between. Yeah, I love it. So let's back up there. Hold on one second now. So, <laughs> so you're saying that you have a picture of Sasquatch or something that looked like Sasquatch walked past your camera or one of your buddies who was just, you know, enjoying a little bit too much, you know, biscuits and gravy walked in front of the camera. Yes, yes. It, it was a buddy that was was messing with me. And uh, it got my attention. It got my attention. So I want to take a step back here. I was I was wondering about Sasquatch myself. So now that we got that cleared up, um, you started your company back in 2008. And so when you're someone getting out of college, uh, you're faced with, okay, now what do I want to do with this? And for most people, you know, they jump into whether it be a consulting firm, local government, whatever. Uh, but mm -hmm. You started a company, which is awesome. So was that what was that the plan from the start to be working for yourself? I, I did always want to do that. And, you know, I, I graduated in 2000. So, you know, I had several years there in between and I actually went to work for a private organization uh, managing their land um, and taking care of their resources. Um, and from that, um, I, I tell you, I don't know that I've ever really told this story, you know, sort of in this format, but uh, I was working with Dr. Grant Woods on a project together and he, he actually got a phone call while we were in the truck together and it was a landowner that was calling, asking him for, you know, some advice and, and wanting to do a consulting visit and that sort of thing. And so he kind of put his hand over the phone and leaned over to me and said, Hey, you want to go talk to this guy? And that's how I got into consulting. And, uh, so that was, that was really cool. That was my first consulting job and, uh, it just sort of went from there. And uh, camera surveys became a really big part of it as well. What a neat story. What a neat story. So being a land manager, someone that does this for a living, you've seen countless pictures of deer. You've been around countless deer. To be able to take a deer that was part of all of that circle. I mean, it had to be, I mean, this is the deer we're going to talk about here in a second. That had to be pretty satisfying. Uh, it was, it was, and, and like you said, we'll get into the story, but it was filled with ups and downs, but in the end, it was, it was very satisfying to be able to take a deer of that caliber, um, you know, that, that I, and, and so many other people, um, put a lot into producing that deer. Um, it's, it's not something that I did by myself, but, um, you know, the, the neighbors played a big part in it. The people that hunted with me on that property played a big part in it. I was just the lucky one that got to take the deer. I like how you said that because it really does, I guess, take a village, if you will, 
uh, to, to grow a deer <laughs> right. like that, unless you're someone that's blessed with, you know, you've got thousands of acres and the deer are sure. using your place as, their, as the only place they live. But for the most part, we're talking about properties where, you know, this is shared properties, right? This deer, and depending on where they're summering and wintering and all that, they're often covering right. a lot of ground. So it does take a, a lot of different landowners. It, it really does. And even, you know, on the property that I killed this deer, it's, it's several thousand acres. So it's a very large property um, surrounded by neighbors that are, you know, thousands of acres. Uh, but this deer in particular moved about two and a half to three miles between his um, summer range and his fall range. Um, so he made, made a pretty significant move over here. Well, let's get into it. If this is, uh, you are the first in a series of shows that we're going to do that are deer stories, basically. Okay. As we head into our hunting seasons. Now, if you're in Florida, we actually posted on our social media here that what we know of at least is one of the first deer shot in the country this year, a buck out of Florida. But okay. yeah, you're, you know, hunting season is starting up in a lot of places. For a lot of people, though, it's usually not until around late September, early October. And so we're going to put out a bunch of shows that are focused on the thrill of the hunt. And right. so let's get into the story of your buck. And so my impression is, and I've, I've read the stories, I've listened to you on other podcasts, and it's an awesome story, but in general, my, my consensus is this was a pretty frustrating critter to try to get close to, wasn't he? <laughs> he certainly was. He, he definitely tested me. And uh, I tell you, I've, I've matched wits with, with a lot of mature bucks. And more often than not, they get the better end of the deal. And uh, I, was, I was very fortunate this time, not only to have one opportunity, but to have two opportunities. And that's, that's something that I think is just really rare. So let's get into the history. And I always think, yep. I, I mean, I, I think actually about this a couple different ways. I enjoy the stories where someone says they knew about a deer for X number of years and they eventually caught up with it. And I also love right. the stories where some guy is just sitting in a stand somewhere and a, you know, a giant walks by. <laughs> Those are intriguing. Right. But you uh, you had a history with this deer. Would you mind taking us through that? Yeah, so I guess it started about uh, three years prior to when I actually killed the buck. Uh, so we had pictures of this deer as a three and a half year old. Uh, got the first pictures of him in November. Um, he was a mainframe 10 point. He already had splits on both of his G2s and had a split on one of his G3s. Um, so he was a pretty, you know, recognizable deer. Not not a lot of deer out there that looked like that. Um, and so we got pictures of him uh, on this property. We we let bucks get five and a half before they're eligible for harvest. So um, we're we're trying to only shoot mature bucks. So this deer was off limits. He was probably pushing 150 inches at three and a half years old. And so to let that deer go. Uh, you know, in a lot, a lot of places across the country, it's it's really hard to let 150 oh. inch deer go, no matter how old he is. No doubt. Uh, um, but you know, we like I said before, we have good neighbors. Uh, we communicate. We all sort of had the same goals in mind, and so uh, we decided to let this deer go. Was really, you know, optimistic coming into the next season. I wanted to see what that deer did. 
uh, he never showed up at four and a half. I never got a picture of him, never saw him. The, the neighbor where the deer also spent a lot of time, uh, never got a single picture of him, never saw him. So we just assumed the deer had disappeared. Um, and, you know, fast forward to this past deer season, and I run a camera survey on the property every year, uh, but I had never picked up this deer on the camera survey. He, he didn't live on this property during the summer. So uh, August rolls around. I run the camera survey. Of course, I don't get him. That's no surprise. Um, but then my friend who manages the property next door to us sends me the picture and, and just says, you know, he's back. And it was, there was no question what deer it was. And he had blown up into just a giant, um, you know, mainframe 10 point with split G2s and split G3s, um, had a couple of smaller kickers on his bases. And so he showed back up. He's, the deer always made his move in mid-September to leave the property where he was and come over to us. So I'd been working on camera surveys, uh, pretty hard and heavy, had not even thought about getting into the woods yet. And it was late September by this time. And, you know, our boat season in Georgia starts in, you know, mid-September. Uh, so I had some cameras up and all of a sudden the deer, I think it was September 27th, 28th, somewhere in there, uh, deer showed up on camera. And I, like I said, I'd not even thought about hunting yet at this point and got those pictures and said, I've, I've got to go hunt this deer right now while he's there because, you know, he could disappear again at any time. Um, so I, you know, figured out a plan, figured out my plan of approach, how I was going to get in. I did not have a stand set up where the deer was, was coming in and, go to my closet where I keep all my hunting stuff. And I usually keep my bow release in my backpack that I take to the stand with me and, and cannot find it. Can't find the backpack anywhere. Um, it has just disappeared. So last minute I make the decision and I'm going to just go to the store and buy a new bow release and go get in the stand. So that's what I did. Uh, and this story can get really long winded. So I'll try to shorten it up a little bit. We're hanging on every word. No, we're hanging on every word. Go ahead. <laughs> So, uh, so I go to the store, buy a new bow release, uh, come home. I shoot it three times in the backyard. It's, it's the same style release that, you know, I had before. So I figured, okay, I'm good. Um, uh, go to the stand, uh, first, first sit actually didn't see a single deer. Uh, I went the next morning, saw a couple of deer, but he didn't show up. Uh, on the third sit was the second afternoon. Uh, I, was just racking my brain because the deer was showing up on the camera, just not when I was there. And so I figured out a different entry route into the stand on the second afternoon, uh, came in from a different direction and sure enough, it paid off. And an hour and a half before dark, the deer comes out and I have him at 20 yards broadside, but there's a limb covering his body. So, you know, I've, got tension on the string i'm holding my bow and just two more steps just take two more steps and i hear something walking behind me and the deer pops his head up and looks straight in my direction and he's looking under me uh, you know i'm up in the tree but he's looking at what's coming behind me 
and then he just turns around and runs. And here comes a coyote, came five feet from the bottom of my tree, um, right out to where the deer was. The buck runs off about 80 yards and stops and just stands there and looks. And uh, I mean, my heart just sank. I was like, oh, that, that was my chance and I blew it. And uh, so the deer stands out there for a good five minutes. Um, the coyote's milling around in front of me. And then the coyote, you know, again, goes towards the buck and then he runs off of sight. And so once again, the heart sank and like, oh, this is over. Um, about 30 minutes passes. Uh, I scare the coyote off. I didn't want to shoot him because I still had hopes that, you know, this buck might come back. Good call. And yeah. uh, so I just kind of waved my arms and scared the coyote off. And sure enough, about 30 minutes uh, later, I see the buck walking. He's probably 80 to 100 yards away at this point, kind of crossing in front of me. Um, and then he disappears again. And so in the meantime, I had another smaller buck, a two or three year old come out um, and he was milling around in front of me. And right before dark, I hear this grunt and the buck in front of me, the smaller buck kind of looks up and looks in the direction that I'd last seen the big deer. Uh, and sure enough, here comes the big deer back again. He came right back in on the same trail that he was on before, uh, except this time it was five minutes before dark. I mean, I had five minutes of shooting light left. Uh, he walks out, I uh, had him at 22 yards broadside and draw my bow. I'm settling the pin in. Uh, you know, for those of you that don't deer hunt in Georgia in September, it's hot mm -hmm. and there's a lot of bugs. And so I had gloves on because the mosquitoes and the, you know, no CMs were just eating my hands alive. So I draw my bow back, I'm settling the pin in, and I always bring my finger back, my trigger finger back really slow until I feel the trigger so that I don't jerk it. And so I kind of slowly move my finger back, you know, until I feel that trigger so I can squeeze. And as soon as I got close to that trigger, the bow went off. Um, it had much, much less trigger tension on that release than I was used to. And uh, so the bow went off before I was ready, long story short. And I hit the deer squarely in the shoulder. Um, and I mean, my heart just sank. I was... I was so upset and disappointed in every emotion you can imagine. Um, so then the next day, uh, my buddy that uh, manages the neighboring property sends me a picture. And I had talked to him the evening before and told him what happened. And uh, the next day, he sends me a picture of the deer with the arrow still in him um, at 3 o'clock the morning after I shot him. Um, so I was a little relieved and very disappointed and, and a little upset with myself for, you know, messing up the shot and, um, uh, and then the deer just, he disappeared and for a month, didn't see him, didn't get any pictures, had no idea where he was at. And early November, somewhere around, I think the eighth, ninth, somewhere in there, uh, the deer shows back up on my camera. Let me, let me pause you right just, there because I'm really yeah, curious. Sure. I'm really curious about something here. 
Uh, actually, okay. first of all, Mike, that's a B team move. Like, if Corey starts listening to the show more regular, he'll hear about the B team, and you know, if losing your release and all that. That's something we typically do, Corey. Oh, yes. So it's good to know that we have kindred <laughs> spirits out there. But, yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah, and I'm sure that's not the first mistake you ever made uh, as a deer hunter. It, but no, no, but it was a costly one. Well, I'm curious about this and. We'll get into the redemption story, but I'm curious about your mood and how long it took you to get over that. Like, did you even feel like going hunting for a while after that? Just kind of where was your mind there? You know, I, I did not. I was, I was really sort of in the dumps um, for several days and did. I'm trying to think. I don't know if I went hunting again for probably two or three weeks. Um, it was just, it, it really tore me up, uh, one that it, you know, was an opportunity at a deer like that, but even more so, you know, I, I really don't like wounding an animal. Um, I just, you know, I, if I'm going to be out there and, and I'm, I'm going to do this, I, I want to be efficient and, you know, I want to make a clean kill. And so it, it really upset me that, you know, I just, I didn't make a clean shot and didn't make a good shot. And so then, you know, you always get that thought creeping into your head, you know, oh, well, can I really make a shot with the bow? And, you know, you start doubting yourself and all of those things. So uh, it took a little while to get over that. It did. Yeah. So, Corey, real quick, why don't you talk about how did you get over that? Because I think that is something that a lot of people struggle with. And I think it helps just to hear how other people overcome that type of self-doubt. Yeah, and it's uh, it's it's tough. You know, I, I don't know that I can sugarcoat it a whole lot. It's, it's tough. And um, I really took, you know, I'd say a solid week off and just didn't, was not deer hunting, just couldn't even think about going. Um, and then you just, I get out in the backyard with the 3D target and I just practice and, you know, shoot and sort of get your confidence back that, you know, yes, it's, I made a bad shot, um, but, you know, I, I am better than that and I can, I can be better than that. And so it just, I think it, it took a little time you know, shooting targets, getting, getting things tuned back in, getting back accustomed with the equipment and, you know, just, just building your confidence back that you, you can in fact make the shot. It's just, uh, you know, it's, it's a hard, hard thing to get over initially. But it helps to find out that the deer is still alive, right? <laughs> well, that does. That's a, that's a big part of it as well. So to take us from there, you find out, you know what, yeah. this deer's still walking. Yeah, and so he shows back up in November on cameras. Uh, I'm still trying to kill him with my bow. I've pretty much been bow only since about 2009. Um, and uh, I think I killed one buck in Texas with a rifle in that time frame. Uh, so in Georgia, I had not killed a deer with a rifle, a buck with a rifle uh, in several years. So I'm still trying to kill this deer with my bow. And I got pictures of him. I saw he was not in great shape. Um, obviously, the, the wound had gotten infected on his shoulder. Um, he was not really participating in the rut at all. Um, and so there was just, 
I felt like it was very slim chance that I would be able to get this deer in bow range um, in November. Uh, we're still trying it. Uh, I actually saw him twice um, the day before I killed him. Uh, had him at about 80 yards, and he just he wasn't moving. He was actually in a in a thicket bedded, and when he would stand up, I could I could just catch a glimpse every now and then of him, and then he would bed back down. Um, so the next morning, I said, you know, I, I'm putting the bow away. I, I'm going to take the rifle. One, I really want this deer, and two, I just I don't want the deer to suffer anymore, you know. And so I just uh, decided to take rifle the next morning, uh, got to the tree. I was actually using a climbing stand, um, this time I had moved, uh, positions so I could be a little bit closer to where I'd seen him before, um, climbed up in the tree just before daylight, uh, really foggy that morning. And I hear a buck grunt behind me, uh, just after daylight. And there were, there was a buck chasing a doe. And so the buck uh, ran the doe right underneath me and another smaller buck, a uh, three-year-old showed up and those two bucks started, you know, kind of posturing at each other. And uh, the doe just disappeared. They sort of forgot about the doe. I forgot about the doe. Uh, and they are, you know, bowing up at each other, never, never actually fought. And I said, well, shoot, I need to see where that doe went so i pick up my binoculars and start scanning the woods and as i'm looking for the doe i see the big deer bedded down 75 yards from me uh, he obviously had been there when i got there that morning and climbed the tree because this was you know no more than 10 minutes after daylight and he was bedded 75 yards from me uh, so fortunately one of the one of those three-year-old bucks uh walked over to him uh, he you know stood up when the other buck walked up to him and gave me a shot and you know it's fortunately a 75 80 yard shot with a rifles you know I, i've still got that so <laughs> uh so i i made the shot and uh he he might have gone 15 yards and uh i tell you it was it was just unbelievable um uh, my my son is sort of my hunting buddy we you know we hunt together a lot and so that was uh that was my first call as soon as as soon as i you know knew that i had him got down went over there i, I gave him a call and he was actually on his way to school that morning and uh i told him it would be okay if he was a little bit late that morning so he, <laughs> he re redirected and came out and helped me drag the deer out and helped me take pictures and celebrated with me so that was a that was a great feeling to have him there as well. That's a good dad right there. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> so no. even though you you describe it as you know you've a relatively easy shot, I got to imagine, given all that had happened up to that point, and the fact that I'm sure you didn't know it was 196 inches, but uh, <laughs> it's still. I mean, I would be shaken. Like there was had to be some nerves yeah. there. Uh, yeah, there definitely was, and, and I I was definitely praying, you know, please, please, Lord, let this shot be true. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, and it was, uh, and so definitely some nerves. You go up and you finally put your hands on him. What was that like? Yeah, uh, he he was bigger than I expected. Um, I I really 
thought that he would, you know, be right at 180 kind of deer, um, you know, still a tremendous deer. Um, but when I actually put my hands on him and, and then put a tape measure on him, I was, I was really blown away. Um, I, I green scored him at 199 gross, um, you know, the day, day that I killed him. Um, I think his official score ended up being, I think, 196 and change gross with a 192 net, 192 and an eighth net. So... Uh, just, just a spectacular deer. Yeah. I mean, very spectacular. One of the best ever killed in Georgia. And, uh, that's, that's awesome. And so, uh, if you want to see the pictures of this folks, the easiest way, if you just go in and type Corey Croft buck, you'll see all kinds <laughs> of cool pictures and articles, by the way, incidentally, if you go in and you, and you type in Nick Pinizzato or Mike Groman buck, uh, don't expect a lot. So we're not, yeah, we're, we're not on that, on that level, but if you do that, you'll see this beautiful deer that Corey got. And it, it looked like he was really clean. There were no breaks or anything on his rack, were there? Yeah, no, he had not broken anything. And he was, he was non-typical scored as a non-typical, but he was a very symmetrical non-typical. Um, all of his non-typical characteristics were, were matched on each side. Well, it's an awesome story, and we want to congratulate you, obviously, on that. And you're still living it out. People are still talking to you about it. And <laughs> so, but we're going to take advantage of having you here and your expertise and your knowledge about deer. And so, you've been around mature deer a long time. As you said, you're letting deer at your place get to five years old. And for, uh, you know, anybody that's been around mature deer, you know that there's a huge difference between a two year old deer and a three-year-old deer, but then there's an even bigger difference between a three-year-old deer and a five-year-old deer. That's when they start reaching sort of that mythical stage. What yeah, are people, absolutely. what are people getting wrong? Like what are, what are people missing in terms of an inability to, to get themselves close to a deer like that? Well, you know, I think that by, obviously by the time the deer is that age, he's, he's kind of like people, you know, you, by the time, you know, somebody's 50, 60, 70 years old, they, they've been around the block, they've seen a lot of the tricks, you know, they, they have some wisdom. And I think deer are kind of the same way. Uh, if they have survived to reach that four and a half, five and a half, six and a half year old age class, uh, they've seen a lot. They've seen a lot of the tricks. Um, and one thing that I think a lot of people underestimate is the deer's ability to pattern you. Um, we always, you know, always talk about patterning the deer and what's the deer doing and where is he going to show up and when. Uh, but mature deer are really good at patterning hunters. And if you go into your stand the same way every time at the same time of day and, you know, if the wind is wrong once or if you're hunting a stand that's been in the same place for five years, um, whether it's a ladder stand, whether it's a lock-on stand or, or a tower stand, uh, deer learn where those locations are. And sort of a side note, uh, I hunt a property that has pretty high doe harvest pressure. I mean, because of the population, we have to take a lot of those. And, and I remember hunting one day, it's on about a three acre food plot and we had I think we had three stands on that field that we, so we could hunt it during different winds. 
and there was a doe that every day before she started blowing a hundred yards before she got to the field. Didn't matter Jeez. what the wind was doing. Didn't matter where you were. She started blowing a hundred yards before she got to the field. When she got to the edge of the field, she would stick her head out and she would look directly at all three of the stands on that field before she would walk out into the field. Um, and so, I mean, that's just a, a good example of how these deer can pattern us and figure out what we're doing. Um, so uh, switching things up is something that I would say, um, you know, I don't know if you caught that when I was telling the story about the deer that I was able to take this past season. Uh, um, but, you know, I, I came into the stand from a different direction mm -hmm. um, on the day that I actually saw him. And that was not the first time that, that I've done that and had success on a deer that just wasn't showing up. Um, on a separate occasion, I had a, you know, a high 170s deer that would show up like clockwork every single day, an hour before dark. And I hunted him four or five times and never once did he show the day that I was in the stand. And then the same thing, I changed it up. I came into the stand from a different direction, figured out that that deer was actually bedded very close to the trail that I was using coming into the stand. And he just watched me walk in. And yeah. so, you know, he knew I was there. He didn't get up and come over there in the daylight. Uh, changed things up and uh the first afternoon that i came in from a different direction saw the deer now the story didn't turn out as well he came in at 20 yards and as mature bucks do he figured out something just wasn't quite right and turned and walked straight away from me and never gave me a shot so um but yeah deer pattern you uh much more quickly than most people think and Nick and I, we have had that same issue. The one farm that we hunt, we have to park low at the low ground and the deer are always bedding on three different ridges around us where they have the sight advantage. They have the thermal advantage. The sound echoes in that valley tremendously. And so we've had situations where they've been daylighting either over a scrape, over food, consistent trail, natural browse. And we show up to hunt on the correct wind. We think everything's perfect and we don't see a deer. And in that situation, most likely they are patterning you in some way, shape or form. And I think a lot of people don't understand how well that they do that and how consistently they do that. And I wrote that down when you did say, it, and I wanted to give kudos to you because you were actually at least had the wherewithal to, to actually realize that, okay, something's wrong. And too often as hunters, we're too proud and we think it couldn't be us at all. But for you to think, okay, it's got to be me and my approach. I'm going to try something different and it pans out. And so what I want to tell everybody out there is if this is happening to you this season, go ahead and change it up thoughtfully on how you're going to you know, approach your stand from a different location. And more likely than not, you'll see a change. You'll see an improvement. You'll see a difference that might get you a chance. Yep, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So let me ask you this, Corey, we'll end with this. Um, I'm curious as you head into this season, yeah. uh, does a certain deer have your eye right now? And if, if so, is it in the same class of the one you just shot? <laughs> well, well, I'll answer the second part first. And 
and definitely not. Uh, I, I don't have any nearly 200 inch deer uh, that I know about this year. So uh, we'll see how the season goes. I, I do have my eye on a couple of deer that are, you know, really nice uh, 150 to 160 class deer, um, which are, you know, tremendous deer. And uh, like I said before, I'm pretty fortunate in the areas that I have had to hunt and, and have to hunt right now. Um, so we've got some that we've been watching now for three years. Three and a half is when we usually start to, you know, kind of take notice and, and are really able to track that deer, you know, after that and, and follow that deer to see what it does each year. So uh, got a really wide 10 points, probably 21, 22 inches inside wow. spread. Um, that's a really nice deer. I'm, I'm looking forward to actually laying eyes on it. Well, maybe we'll have you back on the show next year at this time telling that story. So, uh, <laughs> Corey, so. we thank you very much for taking time out of your busy day. I'm sure you're tired after putting up a bunch of cameras. So thank you so much. Congratulations on a great deer. Thanks for your support of the NDA, by the way. In the photos of Corey's yes. deer, you'll see he's wearing a QDMA hat, which we appreciate. And, uh, that is my lucky hat, and I, I have had that for probably 10 years. That's my lucky hunting hat. Well, that's a serious lucky hat, then. You don't want to change that up. But, hey, thank you for being yeah. on, Corey. Well, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Mike, my hope with this, this series of shows would be to get people excited and fired up for the coming deer seasons. It's still hot in most places in the country, and so that makes it a little more difficult to get excited. But hearing stories like this, uh, that's I'm, I'm ready to go. Like, I'm ready to go right now and, and get my gear out. Well, of course. I mean, when you actually hear about a, you know, we're going to, I'm going to call it 200 inch deer because I'm sorry, four inches to me, you know, it's 200 incher. But what I like about the fact that we're going to be highlighting these stories is because I think that no matter what size this, you know, the deer that we're going to highlight here and the stories and the hunters are going to be, I think that everybody can take something away from it. And, you know, what I took away from, Corey's story is the fact that you should never give up. You should never give up and being persistent and being determined, which I see a lot of that in you when, uh, when you hunt or when you're on a deer like that, it is, can always pay big dividends. I mean, I know a lot of people that I've surrounded myself. I try and surround myself with positive people in, in, in life and in hunting in general, but I've had people that are really toxic and they're always negative and it can really bring you down. So I think that being able to shake off a real, like a potentially really bad situation and capitalize on it is, is my energy for the week. That's going to get me excited for the season. Yes, absolutely. I think that's a great recap. So I tell my dad, you know, we go golfing on occasion and when he hits one behind a tree, I always tell him, I say, well, dad, I said, there's more than one way to make par. <laughs> you don't always <laughs> have to stroke it down the middle of the fairway and, you know, chip on and putt in or whatever. But, uh, Anyway, yeah, there are a lot of ways to get it done, and persistence definitely pays off a lot in the deer woods. So, all right, I'm not going to make people wait any longer because I know that they're on the edge of their seats. They want to hear the B-team report. And so not only do we have the B-team report we had planned, we have breaking news. The doctor has B-team report material from today. So take it away, doctor, you're first. 
Well, my first B team report from today is totally simple, but it's totally me. I'm rushing home. We had, you know, to get Corey on, we had to actually, you know, do a lot of juggling to make all our schedules work. And so I'm rushing home. I told my wife, I said, you know, we got to get our work right on time because we kind of drive, we drive together. I come in, I take care of the dogs. I get them fed outside, watered, toileted. So they're quiet. I come, you know, get my little podcast area all set up and I'm getting all ready to go. And I'm looking like, okay, it's 456, 457. And usually you're on by two minutes before we start to record. Well, now it's five o'clock, 501, 502. And I'm, I pick up my phone and I start texting you. Are we on at five? And just as I'm about to hit send, you say, don't forget we're at 5.30 today because I told you to send me a reminder I, so I don't forget. And I was actually too eager and I was ready to go at five and you're, you're telling me it's 5.30. I'm like, son of a gun. So there, there's, there's my one minor one for the day. Okay. Well, that's a good one though. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being too eager for, for, uh, for doing the coffee and deer show, but tell us, tell us about your other report. Our big one is, this is my big one for the week. So um, my daughter, she um, finished up her residency. She has a full-time job and my wife and she, you know, so she finally found an apartment. So my wife and I were moving her in and we have three children. All of them were either in a residency or in college. And so our house looks like a, you know, a storage unit. So I was happily loading up all of my oldest daughter's things in the truck and I'm packing it and I'm like, okay, well, I still have more room and I'm, I'm going, you know, and I have a full size bed in my truck and I have a cap on it. So I'm packing it right to the top of the cap. And I'm, I'm like, I'm the world's best packer. I said, look how much more room we have here. <laughs> and I was so excited and proud of myself. And so we're driving along and my wife's following me in, in her car and about halfway there, the phone rings. And so I, you know, I go hands-free and I pick it up and she says, Hey, I said, yes. Still so proud of myself. She said, do you have her mattress and box spring? And there comes the gut punch. It was just <laughs> wham. We're, we're, you know, we have, we're, on a, we're two hours into a four and a half hour drive and I don't have my daughter's mattress and box spring. I'm like, oh, I, I felt so bad. And so I'm like, well, guess who's buying my daughter a new mattress and box spring. So <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, you did such a fine job packing. That should have been your clue right there. Like, why is this going so well? Obviously, I'm doing something wrong or I'm missing something. Well, as you well know, when I drive to New York, I always check, all right, do I have my footwear that I'm supposed to have? You know what I mean? Like, like all the things that I, I like have historically forgotten, I, I've learned from that. So now I'm going to have like the sinking feeling every time that I'm going, like, does there need to be a mattress in my truck for some reason? Well, before we were doing the official B team report, yeah, you reminded me of the time that you did a timber survey wearing tennis shoes in the in the early spring in the in the slop. So that's a whole other story. We'll have to do the best of the B team at some point. So, well, that's pretty good, and that's hard to top. You know, college college dads everywhere are laughing their butts off or have similar stories. So uh, anyway, yeah, so it, it happens. Uh, I have a couple to pick from. I'm gonna. I'm gonna, I'll give brief versions of them because yours was so good. But uh, one of them, Mike, and you were part of this. I go out and I finally pick the day I'm going to spray my food plots. And I got this relatively nice new sprayer that fits on my UTV and I'm all proud and I haul everything down to my, to my lower plot and I start try to start to spray and nothing's working. I'm not getting any pressure in the tank. 
And so I'm like texting you and Mike, is there something I'm missing? What am I not doing here? I mean, my valves, I feel like the valves are open the right way. And uh, eventually I'm on YouTube and everything else. You know, you know, by the time you give in and you're on YouTube looking for solutions to your problem, <laughs> you know, at that point you've given up. Right. And it, at the end of the day, I'll spare the longer story. Uh, I had a clogged filter in, uh, in the hose. So it was simply clean the filter and refresh the tank. So anyway, uh, always check your filter because sometimes it's that simple. And for simple people like me, it took me a while to figure that out. But this one's probably the better one. I'm mowing my grass the other day, and I know, and I had just, I had just told my wife this. You know, this time of year, I said you got to watch the bees get aggressive. I watch them out there on the hummingbird feeder, and uh, I see that. And you walk by the feeder, and they want to come at you, and it's just whatever it is. Something about August, bees get aggressive, and I always know to, but before I mow, just take a little walk around and make sure that everything's okay and you're out of harm's way because yellow jackets in particular can build a ground nest in a matter of a day and you're going to be into them and it's happened to me before well here i am right in the middle of the front yard mowing along and all of a sudden it's like somebody took a hammer and hit me in the ankle with it and by the time it hit me and i realized what was going on i just looked over my shoulder and i see this swarm of yellow jackets that i just <laughs> ran over with my lawnmower and they freaking lit me up <laughs> uh, and so there I am running through the yard like a madman and I live in a town so people were probably looking at me like what in the world is going on with this guy <laughs> so I will tell you they might have won the battle but I definitely won the war and I sprayed enough hornet spray into that nest that probably killed every yellow jacket within two miles <laughs> so anyway uh, pro tip this time of year look ahead of your mower for yellow jacket nest hornet nest whatever because I paid the price. Well, even people getting their blinds ready, you know, uh, their hunting blinds, duck blinds, things like that. They can actually nest up in those things as well. That's actually a great point. And uh, especially you leave your blind out over you know, all year long, or even a tree stand for that matter, you could have a, a nest or something being formed under a tree stand. So yeah, go out and check those things. You should be checking them for safety anyway. And uh, don't end up on the B team report like me. So that's the B team report. This time around, I have no doubt we'll have plenty of material for the next show too. So, uh, and yeah, one last thing about food plots. I want to mention this, and then we'll we'll get everybody out of here. It is it is fall food plot time. Uh, you and I, Mike, had had some back and forth. I can tell you from my end that I've prepped most of my plots. They're almost ready for seed. Hope to finish that uh, this weekend. As you're hearing this, and as I told you, I was tempted almost to plant I, on July 31st. I was out prepping the one plot, and I could see there was rain coming. But I talked myself out of it because I thought, you know, if I plant now, it's not going to rain again. And I'm going to say, why didn't I wait till mid-August? So patience is a virtue, but I hope to, uh, to, to get things in the ground, usually by the second week of August. And uh, you're running into some rain issues of your own up there, aren't you? Yeah, we're in a, we're in a, a very unusual drought pattern up at our place. I mean, Mike Edwards, who works for the NDA, he has a property, I think about an hour, maybe 45 minutes, an hour north of me. Um, one of our co-op members has property 20 minutes south and both of them have gotten rain. And in the past 90 days, I've gotten 0 0.8 inches of rain. I mean, the ground's cracked, the cracks are deep, it's hard as a rock, nothing's growing. I mean, the plants are just trying to hang on 
And <clears throat> my summer food plots were pretty much a joke. They served no, no functional purpose for the deer or the, you know, the wildlife on my place. So I'm, I've already developed, you know me, I'm already thinking ahead. I have my three-stage plan for my fall food plots based on when I know rain is going to be coming and consistent. Well, yeah, you have to have a backup plan. And one of the best backup plans you can have is make sure you're doing the work just with the natural vegetation that exists. Like sometimes I think people forget that, you know, deer actually survived and, and were fruitful before we had food plots, right? And exactly. so, yeah, we want to take advantage of that. And, and you and I both do a lot of timber management and forest stand improvement. And we've provided a lot of other food for the deer in addition to what they're pretty darn good at finding on their own. So don't rely on those food plots. But I do hope everybody gets rain because this is the time of year where uh, everybody's talking about it. It also helps our farmers out get that last little bit of rain they need to finish off their crops. So uh, lots going on this time of year, as we had alluded to earlier. So with that, folks, hey, I hope you enjoyed our hunting story today. Like I said, there's going to be more of those to come. Help us all get a little more excited and fired up for the coming season. Uh, we mentioned the national fundraiser at the beginning of the show for the UTV. Again, there's only a thousand chances on that thing take advantage of the opportunity help support the national deer association by the way once again rated the highest possible rating by charity navigator as a four-star charity so you know if you're supporting us that your money is going to be well spent and hey you might just win yourself a prize as well thanks again for listening folks check us out at deerassociation.com for more if you're new to us otherwise national deer association where we are united for deer